He called himself the Prince of Joy, and in an internet chat room, he met a young lady whose screen name was Sweetie. Over the next few days, they spent hours chatting online, flirting, and all of that kind of stuff, sharing their secrets and getting to know each other. They found out they had a lot in common. They lived in the same city. She was 32, he was, 20, or he was 32, she was 27. They were both stuck in miserable marriages that would most likely end in divorce. Even though they had only chatted been over a week, they decided that they were falling into love and that they should meet in person. So they picked a local restaurant and decided that this would be their first date. When Prince of Joy arrived at the restaurant, he found Sweetie waiting there for him. But he was surprised to discover that Sweetie was his very own wife. <laughs> Oddly enough, Prince of Joy and Sweetie ended up in divorce court, accusing each other of adultery, even though they were unknowingly having an online affair with each other. Looking at the embarrassing experience, Sweetie said, we seem to be struck, uh, stuck excuse me, in the same kind of miserable marriage. How right that turned out to be. Prince of Joy replied, I still find it hard to believe that Sweetie, who wrote such wonderful things to me over the last week, is actually the same woman I married and who has not said anything nice to me for years. I have one word for you this morning. Yikes. It is a true story this morning that is both complicated, disturbing, and all too familiar, all too common. I'd like to welcome you this morning to our ongoing series of Back to the Basics, where we are looking at an in-depth study of the Ten Commandments. And I must admit to you this morning that I have never spoken on the Seventh Commandment of adultery. I have never talked about adultery in my 30-plus years of ministry. Maybe I made reference to it, but I have not actually designated an entire sermon or discussion on it. Today we are at Commandment number 7, if you haven't already figured it out, and from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14... Here's the seventh commandment. Let's read it together from the Ten Commandments. You must not commit adultery. I find it fascinating that God would list adultery as number three in the six commandments addressing interpersonal relationships. So we have honor your father and mother, then do not murder, and then number three is do not commit adultery. Obviously, God is speaking to the importance of family and marriage. If he didn't, he wouldn't have put in commandment number seven. You may or may not be surprised by the following stats. The Institute for Family Studies discovered 20% of men and 13% of women have admitted to having sex with someone other than their partner while still married. That's roughly about 33% of all marriages have experienced some level of infidelity. That would be three out of every 10 couples in this room this morning. To further shed light on that statistic, the American Psychological um, Association has reported only approximately 60% of marriages will survive infidelity. And further studies suggest, of the 60% of marriages that do continue on after unfaithfulness, many of those marriages are basically caught in the mindset of survival. They never actually get back to the point where they were thriving at some point in their marriage. Why is that? Well, that's a good question. There are a variety of reasons, and there are a variety of ways that we could go this morning in this discussion, but this is where God is leading me this morning, and hopefully will speak to you. Because number one, adultery is the act of betrayal. Say that with me, church. Adultery is the act of betrayal. 
Many who experience unfaithfulness um, suggest that, uh, excuse me, many who experience unfaithfulness suggest that adultery is the ultimate act of betrayal. It cuts deeper than any other betrayal that you will face in your life. You may have been betrayed by a friend. Well, adultery cuts deeper than that. You may have been betrayed in a business deal. Well, um, adultery cuts deeper than that one. Maybe you've been betrayed at a church or in church or hopefully not at New Hope, but somewhere along the way you've been betrayed. Adultery cuts even deeper than those betrayals. Adultery is an act that wounds deeply and causes suspicion and bitterness and hatred and sometimes even revenge. A man who was dying called his wife to his bedside. He uh, affectionately told her that he needed to confess something to her as he was dying on this uh, deathbed. He said, I need to tell you that I haven't been 100% faithful to you in our marriage, and I'm sorry. And they're both crying as he's confessing this to his wife. And she eventually breaks out with the words, I know, that's why I poisoned you. <laughs> it was a betrayal that cut so deep that it led to murder. I don't know if you're counting, but that's at least two commandments that were broken in that. <laughs> Adultery is an act of betrayal because marriage, according to God's plan, is based on a covenant and commitment between God and between two people and God. And when we commit adultery, we are breaking or betraying the triangular partnership or relationship that exists with God being at the very point of the triangle and woman and God, a man or man and woman, which is a holy triangular relationship. Let's look at the work, uh, let's look at a working definition of adultery just in case you're not sure what adultery is. This kind of serves as the basis for us this morning. Excuse me. Adultery is the act of unfaithfulness in marriage that occurs when one marriage partner voluntarily engages in sexual activity with another person other than their marriage partner. Pretty clear and pretty concise. One of the primary purposes for commandment number seven, maybe you've already thought this question, why did God put in commandment number seven? Why did he say do not commit adultery? Well, God puts commandment number seven in there for a reason. He wants to protect marriages. He wants to protect families from the fallout of adultery. So it is a law of protection if you want to look at it that way, because God knew how damaging adultery would be to relationships and to family units, and He was desiring a shield to protect marriages from such devastation. You see, God was not acting as a killjoy. Many people say, well, God just put in commandment number seven because He just doesn't want us to have any fun at all. That's not the reason. God puts commandment number seven in there as a protection mechanism so that we are shielded and protected from the devastation that adultery can cause in the family unit. Commandment number seven is not only a protection, it is also a reminder for God that we need to be proactive in our relationships. Not reactive, but proactive. Dr. Tom McGinnis, a counseling psychologist in New Jersey, offered the following explanation of why people commit affairs. And he wrote this from his studies, married people seek out or succumb to affairs when they feel devalued or less than fully alive. They are bored, overburdened. People who have affairs have a child's deep longing to be touched, caressed, held, hugged, he goes on to say, and kissed. Whether they admit it or not, 
They want happy surprises. That might mean a, a sentimental, unexpected gift every once in a while. More important, it is the dependable gift of time and caring, wanting to spend time with each other, he was saying. The present of sharing idea, of shared ideas, experiences, stories, nonsense games, and sexual intimacy. They want the world to butt out. They want a loving friend, a pal who isn't judgmental. Then he goes on to say this. They want someone to convince them they're still loved, lovable, and very special. Then he concludes, for a little while, now and then, they want out, uh, they want out from under the grown-up responsibilities that become predictable, dreary, and difficult. If Dr. McGinnis is right in his studies and his evaluation for reasons why we commit adultery in North America, then it would stand to reason that if this is the, the formula of why we commit adultery, then it would stand to reason that we should be more proactive in guarding our marriages against such pitfalls. Amen? If we know if we don't do these things and we devalue and we don't encourage and we don't love and we don't, we're not physically um, touching and we're not affirming and we're not doing all of these things that he was basically describing, if we're not proactive in these things, then we're setting ourselves up, he said, over and over again, I've seen it, when this happens in marriages, generally a affair will happen. So if we know here is the cause or some of the causes for some of the affairs that are happening in North America and in the church today and in our communities, then why are we not more proactive and trying to continue to woo the one that we love. Amen, church? Instead of being consumed with our own needs, perhaps this time we woke up and become more aware of our spouse's needs for affection and security and friendship and sexual fulfillment. Why not right now? And this very quiet moment because I think we're hitting close to home. Begin to write down some ways that you can leave this service this morning. Ways that you can add value and love and encouragement and respect to your marriage. How can you do that in a proactive rather than reactive mindset? I've discovered this, it may seem oversimplistic this morning, but the single greatest thing that fuels adultery is the lack of communication in the marriage. When couples begin to stop communicating with one another, there tends to be a, a, a drifting that happens. And before long, the drifting is replaced with other communication with other people that lends itself to unhealthy relationships that eventually end up in adultery. Whereas if we had just communicated better, it would have been avoided. Maybe your spouse needs your words of encouragement. Maybe you need to listen. That's part of communication to what your spouse is saying. Communicating better in every relationship leads to healthier relationships. Amen, church? If we communicate with our loved ones, especially our spouse, I'm here to tell you that adultery will occur far less if we're better communicators. Adultery is not only an act of betrayal, but we also know, or I want us to know, is that adultery is an act of selfishness. 
we want what we want and we want it right now, right? How many have heard that slogan, I want what I want and I want it right now? That is an act of selfishness. It's a philosophical belief of selfishness. The act of selfishness begins in the mind and the heart. Patrick Mumbelog said this. He said, sadly, so many people think that infidelity starts as late as physical contact or worse, as late as sexual intimacy. Truth be told, infidelity starts much earlier than that. Adultery takes place long before the actual act of adultery. In many cases, weeks and months and years before. Adultery is deliberately making a decision in your life to disconnect from the person that you promise to spend the rest of your life with. To pledge yourself, to under God, make this commitment before family and friends that I will be with this person for the rest of my life. And we, we deliberately disconnect from that covenant and we disconnect from that person and we reconnect with another person. Jesus offered the following insight on the commandment to not commit adultery. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard the commandment that says, say this with me, church, you must not commit adultery. He's quoting commandment number 7 from Exodus chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 20. But I say, so Jesus even takes it a further step, uh, goes another step. He said, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already done what? Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so Jesus takes it even a step further, and God says to Moses, you tell the people of Israel this, commandment number seven, you must not commit adultery. That's the actual act of, of sexual intimacy with a person that is not your spouse. That's adultery. Jesus said, I tell you that even if someone looks at another person with lust, they've already, they've already what? They've already committed adultery. There may have not been any physical activity between the two, but you've already committed this adultery in your mind and in your heart. Then Jesus goes on to say this. You may or may not like this, but these are, these are the words of Christ, not my words. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown where? Uh, so Jesus is telling us, in, in Matthew 5, 29, he's saying, Here's the consequences of adultery. If you do not control this, if you do not get it under control, it will lead you to a place called what? You got it. Verse, 20, uh, verse 30, Jesus said this, and if your hand, even your strong hand, for some of us it's right, some of us it's left, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body, say this with me, church, to be thrown into hell. See how Jesus was taking adultery beyond the act of adultery and positioning its birthplace where? In the heart and in the mind. According to the Greek language, the one Jesus is condemning in Matthew chapter 5 is the person who looks at another person who is not your spouse for the deliberate purpose of lusting after, of using your eyes and your mind and your heart to arouse passion in your life and lust where you actually acted out. That's what Jesus is talking about. The Jewish rabbi had a saying, and it was a saying that Jesus would be familiar with because he's probably gone to the tabernacle a few times and heard the rabbi say this. 
In fact, it is such a popular statement by the rabbis that Jesus incorporates it in his teaching in Matthew chapter 5. And this is what the rabbis would often say at this time when Jesus was alive. The eyes and the hands are the two brokers of sin. The eyes and the hands are the two brokers of sin. In Matthew 5, in graphic detail, Jesus describes what we should do if we're using our eyes and our hands to fuel lustful desires. What does Jesus say to do? Gouge it out, cut it off. Did Jesus literally mean that we should gouge out our eyes? That we should go home today at lunchtime, I'm sorry if you're young here, and take a spoon and plop it out? Or to go to the table saw and cut it off? Did Jesus actually mean that? No, not, not literally. So nobody put the spoons down back away from the table saw. Not literally. But Jesus was communicating this, that anything that seduces us to sin against God and to sin against another person should ruthlessly be rooted out of our lives. That's what Jesus was communicating. He wasn't saying, gouge out the eye and cut off the hand. He was saying, if something causes you to sin against God and to sin against another person, then you need to be ruthless and rooted out of your life so that it has no part of your life. It has no, not even an, a centimeter of, of area in your life at all. You kick it out of your life completely. Well, we see this. Richard Sibbs says this. Satan gives Eve and Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, let us consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. You see, this is, this is the problem with temptation today. It's, it's not a new problem. Actually, it's been along for, around for a very long time. You can go back to Adam and Eve's day. You can go back to the book of Genesis. When temptation comes our way, we immediately begin to think, this is what I'll gain. This is what I'll be offered. I will, in the act of adultery, I, I will be connecting with a person who really cares about me and thinks a lot about me and encourages and makes me feel good. There's a lot of positive things, if you can look at it that way, that this person, if you commit adultery with, will offer you. And so we embrace the temptation by, by looking at it simply by, this is what I'll gain. When we should really look at temptation in the light of in the mind frame of, this is what I'll lose. A lot you will lose. You will actually lose more than what you will gain. Do you believe that, church? When the temptation of adultery comes knocking at your door, we must consider what we will do if we give in to this temptation. If we invite this unhealthy relationship into the sanctuary of our home, what will it do? Think about it. Make a list. You will have a broken relationship. Nine times out of ten, well, or three out of every ten will end up in divorce. If there's children involved, it will mess them up for life. I, I, I've seen it. it. Your finances will go down the tubes. You will experience rejection and pain and shame and a host of other emotional experiences. Before, when temptation comes knocking at your door, think about what you will lose, not what you will gain. 
You see, adultery is an act of selfishness that most always begins, according to Jesus, in the mind and in the heart, with the eyes. There's a pretty famous adultery that happens in the Bible, if I can say it that way. It happens in 2 Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it is indeed an act of betrayal and an act of selfishness on the part of someone who actually knew better. This person knew better. They knew that they shouldn't have done what they did, but they did it anyways, and it is purely an act of betrayal and selfishness. Here we go in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to look at a few verses, and then we're going to drop down to the latter part of the chapter. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go to war, uh, out to war, David sent Joab the, uh, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. In the latter part of verse 1, they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. That's the beginning of the problem right there. He was in a place where he shouldn't be. He should have been out with his men. Verse 2, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, Jerusalem, he noticed, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. What does Jesus say? If your eye causes you to sin, do what? So we see that it all begins with the eyes here. In the latter part, or excuse me, in verse 3, he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In, in verse 4, then David sent messenger, messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he did what? Say it with me, church. He slept with her. Now, some of you are naive enough to know you think it was just a sleepover. Well, let me just hold on. Uh, there's proof here before we go Before we go any further. Ver verse 4, uh, she had just completed the purification rites of, after having her menstrual period, then she returned home. Then in verse 5, we see later that Bathsheba, Bathsheba discovered that she was what? Oh boy, so they, it wasn't a sleepover. It was more than just a sleepover. She was pregnant, and she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. And then we're going to drop down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, so David has arranged for the death of her husband, she mourned for him. And then in verse 27, when the period of mourning was over, David sent her for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. In the latter part of this, verse 27, then she gave birth to a son. Now say this with me, church, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. One more time, let's say it together. But the Lord was displeased with <laughs> with what David had done. Many have suggested, and I would agree, this is the moment, 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is the moment in David's life, this is the moment in David's family, this is the moment in his leadership, the beginning of the end. It was the start of a downward spiral in the king's life. Unfortunately, David and his family never recovered from 2 Samuel chapter 11. They never did. Why? Well, we just read the verse that said God was what? He was displeased with what David had done. He was displeased with David's selfishness. David's selfishness. Why? Because God knew the heartache and destruction that adultery can create in the life of people. 
If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll discover that there are six levels to this adultery that, that David commits. First of all, you'll, you'll notice that David did what? He saw. He woke up one afternoon, took a stroll out on the rooftop, and there he saw this, this amazing, this beautiful woman, and, and he saw her bathing. Then David began to do what? He began to plan. Oh, I need to get to know her. She's, she's beautiful. I, I want to get to know her. So he, he, sends, he sends people down to her home and, and inquires about who she is and if she's married and all of that. And once he gets all the information, they come back and say, well, David, she's married. She's really off limits. But David says what? I want you to send a messenger down there and bring her back to my palace. And then David does what? He acts on what he saw and what he planned in his heart and in his mind. He committed the act of adultery. Then what else do we see? Well, we see that David deceived. He deceived God. He deceived himself. He deceived Bathsheba. He deceived Uriah. He deceived his people. He deceived his kingdom. We see that David began to destroy things. He destroyed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He began to, to, to lie about things and cover them up. And so we see there's a whole host of things that are happening from this one act of adultery that David commits. Most not always, but adultery is an age-old pattern of this right here. Of seeing, planning, acting, deceiving, destroying, and lying. Almost all adulteries have that pattern. You see something, you like what you see. And when you began to plan it out and think about it, position you, yourself in ways that will be noticed by the other person, then you will act it out. If there is a willingness on the other person's part, you will then deceive, to try to hide the lie, and you will try to destroy, to keep it under the, under the sheets. In committing adultery, David, King David broke Ten Commandments. I'm not saying this morning that when you commit adultery, you break all Ten Commandments. I'm not saying that. But in King David's life, by committing adultery, he broke all Ten Commandments. He coveted another man's wife. That's commandment, commandment number 10. He stole Bathsheba from Uriah. That's commandment number 8. He committed adultery, which is commandment number 7, the one we're looking at this morning. He gave false witness against Uriah. That's commandment number seven or 9. Excuse me. He had Uriah murdered on the battlefield. That's commandment number 6. He dishonored his parents by committing adultery, which was commandment number 5. And he dishonored God by his act, which breaks commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4. He... In his rush to have a fling with Bathsheba, David manages to openly and secretly break all ten commandments, all stemming from commandment number seven. You must not commit adultery. Adultery, you see, is an act of selfishness that causes pain and destruction. Now, I've said a lot, and we've covered a lot of ground. But I did not want to end today's discussion without some positive news, without some hope, amen? So let me end with this this morning. Adultery is an act that is what, church? It's forgivable. Let's say it again. Adultery is an act that is forgivable. Adultery is forgivable by God. God declares, yes, in the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, but God never, com never communicates in the entire scripture that adultery is unforgivable. In, in the very next chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we discover that David is indeed forgiven by God. 
Here's what we find in verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, who was his pastor or prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. So he's confessing, I have sinned against God. And then in verse 14 we discover, Nathan replied, yes, say this with me, church, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Because if you committed adultery, according to the Old Testament, you could be killed for it as an act of punishment. And Nathan says, you don't have to worry about your life. God is not going to take your life, David. But the Lord has forgiven you. And in the latter part of this conversation that happens in chapter 12, God says there will be consequences too for your actions. David was forgiven by God. In fact, King David in a spiritual lament after his affair with Bathsheba and after Uriah's murder writes in Psalm 139 these words. You probably have heard them before in, in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Let's read that again all together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And then in verse 24, point out, let's keep reading, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You see how he's lamenting over the decision of committing adultery with Bathsheba, of, of having Uriah, her husband, killed and murdered. He, he goes to the point where he is, excuse me, he's lamenting to God. He's going, search me, O God. I'm an open book now. Search me and know my heart. Make sure my heart is pure. Make sure my mind is pure. T test me in this, O God. And he's saying, point out anything in me that offends you, O God, because I do not want to get off the path of everlasting life. I do not want to be pulled away from a relationship with you, God. And so search me and examine me and look at me and tell me if there's anything in me that's not pleasing to you, reveal it to me. That's an openness before God that few of us, a few of us struggle with. Because God will expose things that maybe we do not want exposed. God forgives us if we look at the life of David God forgives us if we kind of do these four things right here. If we are transparent. King David was eventually transparent. I've sinned against God. And this is what I've done. If we're willing. He was willing. Lord, look at his lament in, in the Psalm 139. Lord, if there's anything in me, I'm willing to make it right. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to, to, to correct the wrongs. And he's very repentant. Oh God, forgive me over and over and over again. He says, forgive me. And then David is very teachable. God, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do. If God is going to forgive us for adultery or any other sin that we've committed in our life, we need these four things. We need to be transparent. We need to be willing. We need to be repentant. And we need to be teachable. Amen, church? Adultery is forgivable by God if we are transparent, willing, repentant, and teachable. But adultery is also forgivable by others too. It may not be as easy as getting God's forgiveness. But if you are transparent and willing and repentant and teachable, forgiveness can be obtained from others too. Even the ones that you have betrayed can forgive you. I would encourage you this morning not to be like Prince of Joy and Sweetie, the story that started out this discussion this morning. I'd encourage you to seek forgiveness often, to bring healing to the betrayed, 
to the broken. I'd encourage every one of us in this room to crucify, to crucify our selfishness. To crucify our selfishness. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven what? The inexcusable in you. If God has, let's just go back to that one for a second. If God has forgiven the inexcusable in you, to be a Christian, C.S. Lewis says, means that you forgive the inexcusable that's happened to you. And then it goes on to say this because a lot of people struggle with this one right here. As far as forgiving yourself, if God has forgiven you, you must forgive yourself. Otherwise, it is like setting yourself up as a higher tribunal than Him. And we're not higher than God, are we? If God has forgiven you, then you must forgive yourself. Amen? It may be easier said than done, and I'm not trying to minimize the effects and consequences of adultery that happens in families. I'm not trying to belittle or take away in any way, because this is a very serious issue. But I do need to tell you this morning that when we come down to the very core of it all, forgiven people do what? Forgiven people forgive. It doesn't always mean we forget, but it does mean that we forgive. That we let go of the bitterness, the revenge, that we let go of the woundedness, the hurt, and we allow the grace of Jesus Christ to work in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A relationship may never go back to what it was. But forgiveness we must. Because forgiven people do what? They forgive. But forgiven people do more than just forgive. Forgiven people refuse to be selfish by betraying the marriage. So if we are forgiven, adultery should never happen. That's what I'm saying because we will then refuse to be selfish and betray the one we love. God knew that the best option for adultery, you ready for this? He knew that the best option for adultery was to never commit adultery in the first place. Isn't that wise? Because that's why he said in commandment number seven, you must not, what? Commit adultery. He knew that's the best option right there. To never commit adultery in the first place. So let me ask you a couple of questions and then I'm going to pray for you this morning. It's a tough one. Are you guilty of adultery? If you are, then you need to seek forgiveness from God and forgiveness from others. Especially the one that you betrayed. Maybe you're sitting here and going, I've never physically committed adultery. So I'm off the hook, Pastor. No, 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 you're not. What about adultery of the mind and the heart? What about the adultery that never actually goes to physical intimacy, but it is committed within the mind and the heart? That you have saw, you've planned, you fantasized, you hope, 
What about those? Those are things that need to be confessed, amen? That God would forgive us for the things that go on in our mind and our heart that seek to destroy what we already have. God said, commandment number seven is, you must not, say it with me, church, commit adultery. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your tremendous love and grace this morning. There is hope for every one of us, even if we find ourselves in the spot where we've committed adultery, whether actual, physical, or in our mind or heart. I'm thankful that your grace reaches deep and that your light shines brightly in darkness and that there is hope and healing in you, Jesus, and that as you have forgiven us, we are to forgive others. There is some brokenness and heartache and pain from adultery in this room. And Lord, I'm praying today by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring healing and hope to those who feel destroyed and broken, who feel distraught, who feel like my whole world, my whole life's been ruined. I pray that you would bring restoration and grace and a blessing to that soul, to that heart, to that life. There's others of us in this room that we've been acting in a manner that's betraying the one that we've committed our life to, that we have been selfish and not caring and considerate of our spouse's feelings or the struggles that they're going through. It's all about me and what I want and what I need. Lord, may we crucify our selfishness today and may we re-engage in your grace and mercy Fill our life up with compassion as we reach out to make a difference to help the one that we love so dearly that we've committed our life to. Bless every home here today, every relationship, and may we keep our eyes on you, Jesus, and off of temptation and keep us Protect us as we honor you by living a life that is honoring and glorifying to you through the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.